Welcome to episode 24 of the Lady Science Podcast. Uh, as always, this podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian, writer, and editor studying 20th century American culture and the history of the American Space Program. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. Uh, when I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found talking about museums and public history around the internet and in person around Philadelphia. Today we're going to be talking about the fascinating and very strange history of women's dissection and the display of women's bodies in museums. Um, in particular, we're going to be talking about the anatomical Venus, and for those of you who aren't familiar with this, uh, you're in for a bit of a wild ride. Uh, this is a pretty fascinating and wacky story. Um, later on in the show, uh, Amanda Mahoney of the District Museum of Medical History will join us to talk about some of the issues that are wrapped up in displaying sens um, sensitive material in museums today. Uh, but first, to get us started, um, let's travel back in time to 18th century Florence and the workshop of, Las of the Las Piccola Museum. Um, between 1780 and 1782, Italian sculptor uh, Clemente Sussini created his first anatomical Venus. Uh, it's sometimes called the Medici Venus or the Demountable Venus. Uh, so what was that anyway? Um, this was a highly realistic, life-size wax model of a naked woman that could be kind of quote-unquote dissected in seven layers. Uh, the seven layers started with the outermost level on the model's trunk area and ended with revealing a tiny little fetus curled up inside her womb. But there's more. It gets weirder. Um, she had a, head, a full head of human hair, and also eyelashes made from human hair and, and glass eyes. Uh, for some reason, uh, she wears a string of pearls around her neck, and her head is tilted back on a soft cushion, face slightly upturned, um, and she has a rather um, erotic expression, <laughs> almost like she's in sexual ecstasy. And I wish I were kidding or exaggerating, but I'm not. Um, if it couldn't get any creepier, uh, because the Venus was made of wax, her skin looks kind of dewy and malleable. Um, and so this thing is definitely veering into Uncanny Valley territory. And we'll be sure to include uh, a link to a picture of one of these in the show notes, because boy oh boy. But for all of Sassini's effort to make her realistic, he kind of forgot one thing. Uh, so earlier I said that when you take her apart, there's a fetus inside her womb, but outwardly she shows no sign of being pregnant. So, so much for accuracy. Susini wasn't the last person to create a wax model uh, woman like this one. More versions of the anatomical Venus followed. Uh, these sister Venuses are sometimes called slashed beauties or dissected graces. They differ in pose and appearance, and some are frozen in different stages of dissection. 
Some are brunette, some are blonde. Um, some have an arm casually resting above their head to sort of sensually frame the lifeless face. Others have kind of both arms at their side uh, in a much more um, passive position. Um, some have their eyes open and some are closed. Um, but for all these differences, uh, their dissection all ends in the same place with a fetus in the womb. You can still see these anatomical venuses on display in museums in Europe today. In 2016, the Morbid Anatomy Museum in Brooklyn featured some in a temporary exhibit. So, on behalf of baffled museum visitors who see the venuses today, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> so, in the 18th century dissectable models weren't completely unheard of. Earlier iterations, though, were kind of smaller figurine type of models that would be made from ivory or wood. Some were male figurines, but they were mostly women. Um, and they also had a tiny fetus, sometimes attached to the figurine by a, a red string. Uh, umbilical cord, I guess. Also so you don't lose it. <laughs> I think the umbilical cord is what they were going for. It's handy, though. <laughs> yeah, it's probably useful for, like, not losing track of pieces. <laughs> oh, boy. In case you give it to your toddler to play with. <laughs> uh, so these kinds of models lacked the hyper-realism and anatomical detail and accuracy of Susini's because his intention in creating the anatomical Venus was functional, um, the anatomical Venus was meant to teach medical students, artists, and the general public about anatomy without sort of having dissecting real bodies, real cadavers. So one of the big proponents of using wax models in lieu of cadavers was Felice Fontana. He was a natural philosopher and court physician to Leopold II, and Leopold himself uh, instructed Fontana to oversee the creation of a new museum he wanted to create, uh, the Museum for Physics and Natural History in Florence, which is more commonly known as La Spicola. So Fontana wanted to render the entire human body, organs, bones, muscles, everything, in wax and put it on display for the general public in La Spicola. And with wax, Fontana said, quote, we would no longer need to conduct dissections and students, physicians, surgeons, and artists be able to find their desired models in a permanent, odor-free, and incorruptible state. <laughs> so by simulating life with wax, they could conceal anatomy's relationship to death, which is distasteful for some people. Um, in her book, The Anatomical Venus, Wax, God, Death, and the Ecstatic, Joanna Epstein says, quote, the wax models produced by the workshop at La Spicola were posed as if alive, healthy, and pain-free in an attempt to distance the study of anatomy from the contemplation of death and bloody internal organs. Fontana's ideas for the perfect wax model became a reality when Clemente Susini became lead modeler at La Specula and created the anatomical Venus. Susini and his workshop produced thousands of realistic wax models, um, and that included like individual organs and body systems and stuff. Um, but the anatomical Venus was the crowning jewel of the museum. And drawing on the visage of the Roman goddess Venus likely added to the appeal of the wax model. 
Epstein says that Susini's choice to use the image of Venus, quote, drew on the historical and artistic figure of the Roman goddess of love, beauty, and fertility, evoking a long history of paintings and sculptures of placid, idealized nudes, end quote. And probably the most famous example we would recognize today uh, of this kind of historical artistic imagining of the goddess um, is Botticelli's The Birth of Venus, in which the goddess springs to life fully formed, like sailing on an enormous seashell. Um, in fact, the anatomical Venus joined Botticelli's Venus on the list of stops on the Grand uh, European Grand Tour, <laughs> which was a trip that upper-class European men and sometimes women took around the continent when they came of age. See all our famous nudes. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> Europe's finest famous nudes. <laughs> we can't, we're joking, but not joking. <laughs> but... <laughs> But not, not really. really. If you read I, about like the Grand Tour, it's basically like go look at a bunch of ner- nudes and learn some science. <laughs> so realism aside, uh, the anatomical Venus also embodied ideas and beliefs that were particular to the Enlightenment era. Uh, for one thing, Enlightenment scientists and philosophers were big proponents of public education, um, or at least education for citizens, and believed that education was a fundamental part of citizenship. So creating these realistic wax models and putting them in museums was seen as a way to educate the people in scientific principles and natural laws. Uh, But according to these thinkers, understanding scientific principles didn't just make a person a better citizen, it brought them closer to God. So kind of an enlightenment two for one. Um, The human body was a product of divine creation, and uh, so the thinking went uh, to understand the inner workings of the body was, in a sense, to peek into the mind of God. But the anatomical Venus wasn't just any human body. It was specifically a female body, womb, fetus, and all. Um, So that begs the question, why women? Why was the inside of a woman's body in particular supposed to reveal some deep truth about the universe? To answer that question, we have to go back in time again, even further into the late Middle Ages. It's a place we rarely visit on this podcast. (laughs) It's true. Hello. <laughs> Honestly. Hello, Middle it's Ages. medieval times. <laughs> it's like that Michael Crichton book. We're all going to get weird diseases. <laughs> Though we now, most of us, know the details of how babies are made. <laughs> that was not necessarily the case in the Middle Ages. And, uh, people knew that the woman's womb is where... Uh, a person's sex was shaped and the body is formed, but there was a great deal that they didn't know in terms of specifics, such as how boys or girls are actually made in there, <laughs> in that <laughs> cauldron. <laughs> Why some women couldn't have babies at all? Um, how to determine who is the father of the baby? These are questions that obviously have to do with a kind of particularly male preoccupation with... Um, patrilineal descent than you know maybe the larger mysteries of the universe but they were mysteries nonetheless and male writers and physicians thought that the key to unlocking them uh was hidden in the womb (laughs) so issues of reproduction generation and paternity were the secrets of women quote unquote big scare quotes 
And these things were considered to be secrets because on the one hand, um, answers to these questions were largely unknown. But on the other, men also tended to think that women knew the answers and just weren't telling them or were hoarding all of this (laughs) knowledge about their bodies for themselves and keeping it from uh, men who wanted to know about it. Which, like, not 100% wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Catherine Park, in her book titled Secrets of Women, Gender, Generation, and the Origins of Human Dissection, I have that subtitle memorized, uh, she argues that the uterus took on symbolic weight um, that the male reproductive system just didn't. And part of that is because you can see all of the male reproductive system for the most part. It's on the outside. Um, Park says, quote, understanding the secrets of women became... One of the principal goals of 15th and 16th century medical writers, both because the topic was important in its own right and because it was thought that anyone who could probe the complicated and mysterious workings of the uterus would have little trouble understanding the rest of the comparatively simple human frame. (laughs) This is why the womb appears as a, or arguably the, privileged object of dissection in medical images and texts, end quote. And because the womb seemed like this unpenetrable cauldron of life, it was thought that only dissection could reveal its truths. And in this way, Park says that the uterus came to stand in for the body's hidden interior. In fact, the first ever image in a printed book of an internal organ drawn from a dissected body was the interiority of a woman's body with, I'm sure you can guess it, a womb containing a tiny fetus. The image was titled um, Figure of the Uterus from Nature and was taken from the 1494 Italian text Fasicula de Medicina. And with few exceptions, the anatomists who conducted these dissections of women's wombs were men. Um, The message this sends, I think, is pretty clear that women hold the secrets and men reveal them. And so for Susini, by the time he comes on this scene a couple centuries later, a Venus was likely the only logical choice as a subject for him. And when the anatomical Venus was first revealed, she was a big hit. But in the 19th century, the Venuses were viewed as more obscene and morbid than educational or spiritually uplifting. And just overall, public anatomy museums were going out of vogue. Um, dissection and anatomy would still be used as training for surgeons and physicians, but there were concerns that anatomy, quote, meddled in things it should not, end quote. <laughs> Unlike in the Enlightenment era, where most were agreed that the hidden interior of the body could teach divine knowledge, anatomists and museum proprietors of the 19th century weighed the possibility that anatomy and dissection encouraged atheism. Um, but the Venus didn't completely disappear from either anatomy or art during this time. She just took on different forms. One 19th century version of Susini's anatomical Venus was Pierre um, Spitzer's Sleeping Venus, created in 1860. She's still life-size, with hair and eyes, but her expression is much more ambiguous than Susini's openly erotic depiction. Um, The model is also clothed in a white nightgown covering her breasts, and her vagina is covered by a surgeon's hand wielding a scalpel. (laughs) Which, now that's better. So, I know, it's, it's like, it's, it's peak Victorians, I feel like. (laughs) She has only one small opening in her stomach, where she's been clearly, cleanly cut open, 
And even though you can look inside the opening and see a fetus, it's this bloodless, organless cavern instead of the rather bloody affair of Susini's Venus. Elizabeth Stevens argues that this sleeping Venus represents a, quote, new view of maternity in which female pleasure has been erased from the scene and the vagina has been replaced by surgical instruments. End quote. She calls, calls the figure, this is, she calls this the figure of the passionless moral mother. And yeah, of, of course they did. Like, this is, I feel like, early modern enlightenment people, everything was just all out there and a little bit sexy. And then the like mid 19th century rolls around and we can't have any more of that. Yeah. Like, but um, it like still sexy, but secret. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, and, and lots of like imagery of like sex and morality mixed together in weird ways. Yeah. <laughs> I like. I just want. I like the the difference between Susini's model and this later one that the the inside of the body is just like it's just like a peephole and there's a fetus in there. But there's no there's no guts. Like there's no. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. so weird that like the one thing that's retained is the fetus because that's what is you know important or interesting, but not all of the like sort of anatomical workings of the uterus and how that supports the fetus or anything. It's just like it's in there. So you can look in there and that's where it goes. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah <laughs> no boobs like, out here. Yeah, it, it feels like it fits very well, I feel like, with, yeah, the Victorians and their obsession with both, like, cleanliness and also, like, moral purity of women in particular. Um, which is not to say that it's, like, worse than the other version, which is also really creepy, but just it it you see the way that, like, women the views of women um and views of the nature of the universe like have changed even in just like a couple hundred years um but even in the 20th century uh we have our own version of weirdness and the venus um because she hasn't entirely disappeared from anatomy or museums um you guys maybe remember the Body Worlds exhibition that toured around the world in the 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, unsurprisingly, one of the female cadavers was a woman, um, six months pregnant, and she was posed reclining on her side with her arm reaching behind her head and pushing her breasts, wombs, and fetus forward towards the viewer, which frankly sounds kind of familiar to me. Mm -hmm. I remember mm -hmm. seeing this. In the museum. In person? In person, yeah. Ooh. And. Uh, yeah, I never, I was always mm -hmm. like, nope. This one and the one of the guy on the horse with the anatomy horse, those were the two where people <laughs> just like crowded around and like, I don't know. It had gave me really weird feelings. <laughs> yeah. 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 Ooh. And, and it's definitely one of those things where, um, not to get too deeply into it, but, like, the more you learned about, like, the, how that exhibit came to be, the ickier the story Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a weird one. So, another important thing to remember about these images of anatomized bodies, they weren't just gendered, they were also racialized. 
Uh, in an article published in Hyperallergic earlier this year, Sarah Bond wrote about the influence that the anatomical Venus has had on the study of race and biology. Uh, by reproducing the idealized form and facial dimensions of the European Venus, Enlightenment anatomists and artists of the 18th century sort of influenced theories, early theories about biological race, which then became more formalized in the 19th century. Bond says that while standards of beauty for white women and white men continue to be likened to these marble Venuses and Apollos, the bodies of black people were compared to apes. And the contrast is made really painfully clear when in 1839, uh, wax artist Antonio Sarti opened the Museum of Pathological Anatomy in London, and the centerpiece of the museum was an anatomical Venus and a wax Adonis, but the wax models of Africans were literally displayed with tails. And back in episode 16, um, in our episode about colonialism and museums, we talked about the case of Sarah Bartman, a Koshin woman who was taken from her home in Africa to be studied by European anatomists and zoologists. And she became known in Europe as the Hottentot Venus for her reportedly large labia and buttocks. And scientists weren't interested in anatomy, uh, weren't just interested in anatomy to educate themselves and the public. Um, they were also searching for human difference, um, difference between men and women and difference between white Europeans and brown and black indigenous people. Um, Cuvier, George George Cuvier from France concluded that Bartman was a missing link between animals and humans, which re- and she represented a primitive form of humanity. And when she died, Cuvier had her body dissected, preserving, among other things, her vulva. And so both the anatomical Venus and the Hottentot Venus were meant to be sexual, but any sort of humanity given to the white anatomical Venus was completely denied to Sarah Bartman, who was literally reduced to her sexual organs. Which, like, she was the real person. Right. Yeah, she was a real like person. The, that's the craziest thing about this, is it's like, she is she is compared and considered lesser than a weird, creepy wax figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this, Yay. like extremely long-standing like millennia long standing idealization stereotypification of like the perfect white woman and like uh-huh yeah it never seemed to occur to anybody that 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 per- that image of perfection only existed in like an artificial form i don't know it's right. so the whole thing is very strange yeah one thing that uh rebecca and i were talking about before we started recording was like how like I don't think that there's any way that like I could or a modern person could look at these things now and try to see them in the way enlightenment people did as much as I could try like (laughs) to get my head in that space um not just because I don't hold those types of religious views but because I think we have such a deeper understanding of male violence and like fetishization of violence against women and like that these anatomical models these women frozen in death but also frozen in some sort of like sexual ecstasy like hits on those images in popular culture that we now have of how men can treat women I think 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also like there may be like a tendency to dismiss the weirdness of the anatomical Venus because of that kind of inability to get in that enlightenment headspace. Because you could like, I could see an argument being made where you're just like, oh, well, there are these like take apart um, models of anatomy that med students still use today, you know, that we had them in my science classrooms, like that kind of thing. But I think it's really important to understand like the context of, like you said, the particular religious beliefs, the kind of like cosmology of the enlightenment and how that was related to images of the body that uh, we don't share now. Like you don't go into your, (laughs) your like anatomy and physiology class in college and like talk about religious ecstasy and (laughs) the microcosm of the universe inside the human womb yeah exactly (laughs) yeah (laughs) like they're these are they may be like you know visually similar but like ideologically and like uh yeah (laughs) we're talking about two completely different worlds really Mm -hmm, and it's important to remember that and like we said it's important to remember that it's also a world in which uh, black and brown people aren't human beings. They're like a different, lesser species of being. And all of these kind of context things should play into the way we look at these images. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think that also like in, you know, our... There's just, yeah, there, there are so many things that kind of go into like how it's it's hard to get into that mindset. And I think like the fact that there are... Like so much since since Jack the Ripper, there have been photographs uh, of like so therefore like real realistic, you know, they're photographs, they're realistic depictions, um, literal depictions of women being torn apart by men. And uh, and while violence against women has always existed, uh it wasn't always like a click away it wasn't always mm-hmm. like a, a book away right. you know even even for the 19th and 20th century in the way uh that it was then um and so i think the i the there was probably like a fascination with realism that we are just kind of wigged out by like the the phrase uncanny valley exists like came about when it did for a reason um and that's because we i think in part because we have photography and we have mass media and when you have neither of those things um it's probably a little bit easier to and when you instead you have depictions of you know angels and saints in um religious ecstasy then it kind of it becomes more in that category of things Mm -hmm. than in the category of sort of sexualized violence that uh we now it that it seems to now be more like yeah and think about if you if the first image you had ever seen in your entire life of like the inside of a human body or the inside of a woman's body or like internal organs was a three-dimensional life-size wax model <laughs> as opposed to like, you know, we're exposed to that right. kind of thing when we're very young in, in movies and TV and, uh, you know, the internet and stuff. But just imagine, imagine what it yeah. would be like if that was your first exposure to seeing the inside of a body, mm-hmm. like at scale. Like, it, I think, it, yeah, it's just really difficult for us to kind of 
imagine what it would be like to live in the kind of world of images of the 18th century and how that would condition the way you would look at something like this because it looks creepy to us because we you know know a little bit about it and it is kind of creepy but for people then it would have been absolutely staggering Mm -hmm. (laughs) to see something like this well and I think it's interesting Rebecca that you brought up Jack the Ripper because I was thinking about that while I was researching for this and like because it was in the 19th century when these types of depictions of anatomical women was seen as obscene and morbid and then the 19th century was also and that was in London and that was also Mm -hmm. where you know Jack the Ripper was doing his thing that I don't know if like there were I haven't I didn't see anything but I also didn't go looking for this connection like if there was any like anybody at the time trying to like thinking about those connections like what does it mean Mm -hmm. when we have these images of cut open women on display in public and then someone is going out into the night and doing that exact same thing to live women I don't know if like there's any sort of historical connection there but it does seem like there is this like cultural moment there in London in the 19th century. Well, I mean, there was always some sort of weird cultural moment in London in the 19th century, but like (laughs) (laughs) this one in particular. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think it does get back to sort of what, um, I don't know, just, just the way that, yeah, it's, you can't, you can't escape the way that this ties into depictions of depictions of women and depictions of the body and that's why it's fascinating the way that it changed from the 18th century to the 19th century and and even from um the the medieval period to to the 18th century and and the way that um how women are depicted is tied up in so many things that don't have to do with women as people but have to do with other ideas about like how the world works and what God is and what morality is. And um, that all of these depictions of women have way more to do with how men trying to make sense of the world than what women are like. <laughs> That's yeah. a, that is a great way of putting it, <laughs> actually. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, the if you were to read the history of the body from the pages of, like, the medicine and like his medical writing through the centuries, the history of the body is the history of a male body. But if you're to read it from the pages of like art history and, you know, religious (laughs) history, the history of the body is the history of the female body. Like it's really fascinating the kind of disconnect between, you know, what people are writing about the body as being like the male body as default and then what people are actually seeing and looking at and images they're making and what's really kind of captivating people's imagination. Well, I think that's a good time to transition into talking about these types of things in our current museums. So now we're excited to welcome Dr. Amanda Mahoney to the podcast. Dr. Mahoney is a historian of medicine and a registered nurse, and she is the chief curator of the Dittrich Medical History Center and museum at Case Western Reserve University. Thank you for joining us, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, Let's just get started with um, telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. So I am a uh, curator and a history of medicine, history of health educator. My historical specialty is 
clinical technology of the mid 20th century with special attention to nurses working in hospitals. I'm new to the position at the Dittrich, and I've been brought on to um, explore an educational mission for the museum. I get really nerdy about things like urinary catheters and <laughs> IV poles. <laughs> Uh, and I, I would describe myself as being very interdisciplinary. So um, I work with collaborators from um, all sorts of different disciplines and all sorts of different backgrounds. So I'm, I have, I was about to say I have my fingers in a lot of pies, but I hate that metaphor, but I can't come up with a better one. Um, and can you tell us just also a little bit about uh, the Dittrich Museum and uh, like how it came to be and what its collection is like? So the Dittrich has a long and fascinating history. It's actually existed since around 1894. It uh, was part of the Cleveland Medical Library Association, which was an a, a association of medical men in Cleveland, Ohio, who banded together to create like a, a club and a space to exchange medical knowledge. Clinical journals were the way that new medical knowledge was disseminated in the late uh, 19th century. Uh, they were expensive and had limited print runs. In the absence of uh, the sort of dominant medical libraries within universities that we see today, there were a number of these private clubs that cropped up across the United States with a similar purpose to pull together resources um, and have a space to present papers, to share new journals. Uh, the building that we're in, is, which is known as the Allen Memorial Library, uh, opened its doors in 1926. It is a combination of a just absolutely breathtaking library, reading room. Uh, it was also kind of a clubhouse. So um, members could come read medical journals, listen to a lecture, exchange ideas with friends and colleagues, and also have a very nice dinner and a lovely cigar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and these are the same people that built the, the early collection of, of the CMLA, world-class collection of rare books and also of medical or clinical artifacts. Uh, the museum is named after... Howard Dittrich and also his wife, Gertrude Dittrich, who um, built the collection partially through um, buying things when they were traveling the world and also through building relationships with other physicians and, and clinicians in the area who were doing uh, groundbreaking research or retiring and trying to get rid of their stuff. The early part of the collection, sort of the pre-1960s, 1970s bulk of the collection, are objects and implements that prominent Cleveland physicians thought were important to the history of medicine. Starting in the 1960s and 1970s, some professional curators, both of whom were women actually, which is really rare, especially in, in history of medicine, came in and broadened the, the scope of what went into the museum. They looked for artifacts related to everyday patient care, um, they looked for everyday objects related to great discoveries. So. For example, we, we not only have some of the early uh, defibrillator technologies that were developed in Cleveland, we also have a gurney, a bedside table, and a few other items from the emergency room were the first 
successful resuscitation after a heart attack occurred. So I'm very lucky in that this uh, collection spans a lot of medical and clinical history, even though it had this very um, narrow beginning, a very narrow conception about what the history of medicine should look like in a museum. I wanted to ask about your job as a curator and historian of medicine and how you kind of approach putting together a museum exhibit uh, about the history of medicine. And I don't know if you could just kind of give us some of the crunchy process of that. I'm really interested. So it's a messy and iterative process. One thing that I, that I have learned over the years is that you never, ever, ever make decisions about what an exhibition should look like and what should be in it in a vacuum. You need to get lots of opinions and, um, lots of eyes on your ideas from the very beginning of the of the project uh, because sometimes the very question that you're asking or, uh, or looking to answer with an exhibit um, is not the right question or concept for your particular audience. I like to work in a team. We have a staff of three at the Dittrich and then um, I have a network of colleagues and friends within Case Western Reserve University to um, help identify areas of interest. Um, I also have a number of colleagues in the museum and history of medicine world who I reach out to if, they're, if they have expertise in a specific area or if they have more experience teaching a particular topic than I do. And then there's also Twitter, <laughs> which is a great place to sort of keep track of what other people are doing and get a quick um, two cents on hey, is this interesting? Is anyone working on this? So that's kind of how the, the, the concept part comes to be. We're looking to engage our audiences to meet the challenges of the future. So rather than just having our educational goal to be, you're going to come to the district and you're going to learn about the history of the syringe. To me, that's not really enough. I want students to come away from the museum with new knowledge and new questions to help them meet the horrible challenges that we're expecting the next uh, generation to solve. Um, <laughs> so, for example, if, if I were to do an exhibit related to syringes, it would be about disposability and reusability mm -hmm. and the systems that, are no, that no longer exist to reuse needles and syringes and why. So that is informed by what are, what are the challenges that the current generation of, of college students and my own kids are, are going to be faced <laughs> with. And one of them is trash and sustainability. Using the district collections and our exhibits to give a historical context and ask, guide, guide our visitors to ask some really big questions um, about our, the current state of healthcare and the current state of the world um, after they walk away from the exhibit. To get a little bit more specific, um, we've been talking uh, in this episode about the history of the anatomical venous. And I think most of us today, um, if we saw this kind of display of a woman's body, we would probably think that it's inappropriate. Um, so as a museum professional, um, I'm wondering what are some of the things that you consider um, when you're looking at the history of these things and having to display a woman's body or any body um, for educational purposes? What are some of the things that you think about? So context, 
first of all, what's the context of how the object or the image was created? We have we have a big archival and photographic collection as part of as well as objects, and many of them are photographs of patients, and they're photographs of patients that were taken around the the you know the early 1900s when photography was relatively new and no one's thinking like wow this image could be a meme <laughs> they're taking yeah. a they're taking a yeah. picture of a of a patient and the what are the power relationships that went into the context of the of the creation of this object or this image a good example that i fortunately rarely have to deal with are anatomical specimens like actual human remains we have very little of that in our collection. But as I'm sure you all know, the history of um, obtaining cadavers for uh, medical education and medical research is not great. <laughs> the, the, uh, you know, these were not people who wanted to leave their bodies to science. And so when we have images of cadavers being dissected, what are the ethical implications of us putting that up in a museum? Um, and of us putting that up on on our website. The context in which we're displaying something is also something that I think about. We have a number of paper mache uh, models, of anatomical models. They are dehumanized. The figures don't have skin. It's down to the sort of, it's below the fascia and kind of into the muscles and nerves and bones. And they're similar to the um, anatomical venuses that you're talking about. They're... Uh, dissectable over and over again. You can take parts of them out. We have those on display. The language surrounding them talks about the objects as a technology for medical education and why they were created to meet a need for dissection and anatomical study when human cadavers were difficult to come by, difficult to maintain, and the older wax models um, were not holding up to um, being handled and you know, existing in non-climate controlled environments. Uh, so, you know, context is my context is my short answer. Considering the context, those objects do spark conversations about our our cultural relationship with death and our uh, current cultural feelings about the male gaze and the and the medical gaze. They're not something that I would want in my living room, but I think that there are different approaches that are still ethical. So I don't have any problem with the museum in Florence displaying those. I find them deeply upsetting, actually, the, the, the anatomical Venuses. Of, of course they should have them on display. They're an important cultural moment, but I would not put them in on display in the Dittrich unless I was doing an exhibit about technologies for teaching anatomy mm-hmm. and unless i was i was contrasting 3d models and what we call sim man which is a uh terif- equally terrifying actually mannequin that replicates clinical situations and students um and trauma teams and rapid response teams practice things like codes on these robot patients and they they are definitely in the uncanny valley these guys mm-hmm. You know, maybe I, I would be contrasting those two things together, but I also would not put a sort of a titillating object like one of these wax figures on the postcard for the exhibit, for mm. example. 
and I probably wouldn't have it be the first thing that you see when you walk in. I would probably have it be a choice to, to see this, to, you know, to come in and, and see it. Besides, like, the obviousness, like, there's the issues surrounding bodies, I feel like, feel really obvious and, and um, upfront. But are there other sorts of objects uh, that maybe don't feel quite so obvious that you sh- that you think um, can be problematic or sensitive or raise ethical concerns um, when you're putting together an exhibit? Oh, yeah. I think uh, just about everything. <laughs> I mean, the, <laughs> we also think about, yeah. you know, I, I am new to Cleveland, and so um, I don't, I, I am not 100% um, up to date on who's, ancestral lands the museum sits on mm-hmm. uh, you know we we what neighborhoods were destroyed to build our beautiful building in 1926 and how do we address that to our, so that our visitors are aware of that history but also so that my walls are not completely covered with text <laughs> um you know ex- explaining every historical aspect of of the space and the objects we don't think about the the history that's embedded in something like a vaginal speculum, of which we have thousands. You know, the history of gynecology uh, is not one of it's not great to put it to put it succinctly that the the bodies that physicians had access to develop gynecological technologies were not often women who had volunteered themselves to be experimented upon. The spirometer is a great, is a great example. Um, that's an object that's, that's used to measure the capacity of your lungs. Um, that was primarily developed by, uh, based on deeply racist research that was conducted basically to prove that enslaved African-Americans were less physically fit than white uh, their white male counterparts, and that that statement's based on the history of the the work of Lundy Braun. That's not I didn't I did not discover that, and I don't wish to take credit for it. But the the whole history of the biomedical enterprise is embedded in these seemingly innocent technological objects that are all over our museum, uh, and it's. Uh, that's why it's so important to not only just to know the history of how these objects were invented and made and who used them, but also to have folks from other different disciplines and with other perspectives take a look at it uh, and look at the the way that you're presenting a story of an object and see what concerns them, see what aspects of this object's object that you know I might not might not know about. I think photographs are particularly problematic. There's a number of ethical issues in um, that that are just sort of invisible, I think, to a lot of folks that work in in uh, museums and who work in the history of medicine. You know, if there's a long history of physicians in a photograph being identified and the nurse and the patient being unidentified, and photography, clinical photography, ranges from everything from the cadaver um, dissection photos that I mentioned to photos of of syphilis patients being diagnosed and during the course of receiving salversan um, when salversan first came to the United States no one was really sure how how syphilis would react and how patients would respond to it and um, 
So photography was used to track secondary syphilis rashes over time as people receive salvarsan treatment. So we have full-on you know, facial photos of people with syphilis undergoing treatment, images that were meant for clinical analysis and exchange of information about the drug, never to be digitized, never to be blown up on a wall in a, in a uh, exhibit about pharmacology. Well, I just wanted to ask about, you know, just the kind of the mission or the concept of a medical museum today and kind of, I don't know, what do you hope, I guess, that visitors will take away from their experience at your museum or just at any medical museum? And what is the kind of role of this institution for us now? Medical museums should be informed by bioethics uh, and and our communities. What do our communities want to see? What questions do they want asked and answered by exhibits and programming and collections? And do your best to match your mission to those needs and your exhibits and your um, content to what people are looking for. I I think too that there are there's images and objects that are tropes in the history of medicine and within medical history museums that we don't even think about them. We don't even think about the ethics of them. Like for example, they're the really classic images of um, children on starvation diets for diabetes and then the um, children receiving uh, insulin early in its discovery and the before and after shots. You know, those are used all the time and we see them all over the place. Uh, and I didn't really stop and think about like, oh wait, that that kid and, and that kid's parents probably weren't thinking that they were going to go be in a museum. You know, that they were gonna be viewed over and over again by museum visitors or that they were gonna be on the cover of a book. Um, and I, I think that uh, that's what medical museums need to do is sort of stop and think about some of these objects that we've that we've celebrated and studied and explored for so long. And, and what are the questions that we haven't asked that maybe we should have? Well, I, I guess I, I think the Dittrich is lucky then to have someone like you who is asking those questions. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, making sure that absolutely. the people on your team are asking those questions. Thank you so much for being here. Um, in this digital space um, and sharing your expertise with us. Oh, my pleasure. It's a really interesting conversation. So that's going to do it for us today. And if you liked our episode, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about any of the segments today, tweet us at at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea, and more, visit ladyscience.com. We are an independent magazine, so we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladyscience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter at at LadyXScience.